0: The way that I record these episodes is I go into my office, which is a little ways away from where I live, because I live way out in a forest in the middle of nowhere, and I have an office in a nearby city, and so I go into the office, and we have this little sound booth, and I put on my headphones, and I have a nice microphone set up here, and it's a little booth we use for recording screencasts and... And I use it for this podcast and for the Future of Coding podcast. And I mention all that because I only get to go into the office, you know, once every so often because it's a, it's a you know, it's my whole day to go into the office and then do a couple of things there and then come home. And so I record these episodes in batches. So far, I've done two batches of six. And so we just had episode 12. This will be episode 13. So this is my first time recording a new batch of episodes since this show has really been out and. And has had a bunch of people give feedback on it. Because the first when I first released it, there were the, the first batch of six episodes. And then right when I released it, I did the second batch of six. So I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to everyone who has been listening so far. Especially to the people who have taken the time to provide me with some very deeply thoughtful, very interesting and encouraging feedback. People who have reached out and have started some some fantastic conversations and have pointed out areas in my thinking that are, you know, that have gaps in them or other alternatives for things that I've tried or have, you know, proposed solutions for some of the problems that I've talked about or who have sort of been wanting to learn more about what I'm thinking. And and if some of my explanations so far have been not very good, they've asked some very interesting questions that have led to other realizations for me about how I could approach this project or how I could approach various pieces of it so uh, sincerely everybody who's reached out thank you so much uh, everybody who's listening I hope you are enjoying this and if so know that uh, I'm very receptive to any feedback or thoughts that you might have about the show or but especially about the project itself about Hest so if there's anything you're wondering or if there's anything you're thinking hey I think this might be an interesting approach um, reach out to me on Twitter, reach out to me in the future of coding Slack, Uh, send me an email, IvanReese at gmail.com, and uh, I'd love to hear what you're thinking. And at some point in the future, I'd like to do an episode that is listener questions. So if you have a question or if you have something that you'd like me specifically to talk about in the show as a kind of a, you know, a a mini topic or something like that, let me know and I will uh, build up a little queue of suggestions and then go through those at some point maybe in the next batch when I do the next recording in a, in a month or two or whenever that ends up being. So uh, that's that I wanted to get that out of the way, first of all. And then the next thing I wanted to do was um, since, I'm recording these in batches that means there's a quite a lag time between when I receive feedback from people and when I'm actually able to incorporate that feedback into what I'm saying on the show. So for instance, a lot of the interesting suggestions and questions that I've received, I haven't been able to incorporate into subsequent episodes where I talk more about that material. So there's a couple of things in there that I uh, I felt kind of weird about because I'm going very deep into this, you know, this area of of managing abstractions and dealing with fibers as opposed to points being conveyed along edges and wrestling with the trade-offs there and synchronization primitives and all that and all the while while I'm releasing these episodes people are, are chiming in with with really awesome thoughts about that kind of stuff so I had ended the last episode saying you know we're done with that for now I'm gonna move on and talk about something else and that is true I am going to um, leave that topic for the most part and uh, talk about some other things for a little bit just so that there's There's a bit of variety in the show, which I think would be nice. Um, but I will come back to that stuff and I will take a lot of the things that people have written to me um, and suggested or, or asked about and and fold that into uh, the future sort of uh, conversations about that subject because there are other approaches other than fibers and points being conveyed along edges that I've considered that I think would be interesting to talk about in addition to folding in some of the listener feedback. And just as a teaser, I'll say that there are two, two main candidates Candidates that I'm considering other than fibers as a way of managing synchronization and and having a little bit of state retention in the conveyance mechanism itself and of course there will be state retention as a like a first class construct you'll need the ability to have some sort of store that you can deposit your data into and retrieve it from later naturally and whether that's you know with bindings or with queries or what have you but there are other ways that i want to have the possibility of including state in the execution model. And I think that that that's something that normally programming languages are very, um, you know, there, there's a, a lot of history there and a lot of um, recent discussion in the emergence of functional programming as a major popular paradigm over the last decade and a bit has really been about controlling where state goes. And I think because HEST is so visual and the execution of HEST is participatory, I think that creates some opportunities to have more places where state can go without it becoming unwieldy and uh, you know, and I I need to get a little swear jar, and every time I invoke this phrase, I need to put a little coin in the swear jar. But I think that Hest will make state easier to reason about. Ugh. Ugh gross. Oh, I just feel so bad saying those words. So uh, just as a tease, uh, two other ideas that I've thought about. One of them is called painting, and the other one is called perching. And painting is where, as a point is conveyed along an edge, as it is you know, traveling to the next function that will be invoked with that data, the point leaves a trail along the edge that it travels along, and that trail holds the value of that point. So it's sort of like, you know, wherever the... the um, Let's do the kids sliding down the water slide again, because that's not going to fit this at all. Oh, my goodness. Uh, It would be like as the kid slides down the water slide, if the water slide remembered that that kid was the last one who went down it. And so if you as the, you know, the demigod associate manager of the water park wanted to do some creepy surveillance or something like that man this metaphor holy cow they could go to each of the water slides and say hey who was the last kid who came down this water slide and and get a reference to that kid what the hell this this does not work at all as a metaphor, um, but basically, yeah, painting is you leave a trail of that point along a path, and that's going to let you do some useful things in the execution or, or let me do some interesting, useful things in the execution uh, model, and I will dig into that more later. The other idea is perching, which is something that a lot of people suggested um, in various descriptions, and that is basically that when a point reaches the end of its path and arrives at a function to be invoked if that function doesn't have everything it needs that incoming data point can just sit there in the inbox of that function just kind of and i call it perching because i almost imagine it like the function is this big sort of um you know this big let's just call it a circle And we'll get into soon uh, why thinking of these data points and and function points as circles is a little bit um, uh, deceiving. Um, But let's just think it's a circle, and then the small little data point coming in is just a smaller circle that's kind of perched at the edge of the big function circle, and so it's just kind of sitting there on the outside. So from a distance, you, the programmer, can see ah, I've got you know two points perched here, and another point perched there, and that and that just lets you know hey, these functions have some data that's waiting to be used to execute the function but the function doesn't have everything it needs and so you can look at oh, what are all the paths coming into that function and see that you know all of them but one have a point perched on it. So when that last incoming path has a point that comes down it to the function, then that function will run and produce some output. So it's another way of sort of um, doing coordination. It's just, And then that invites the question, what happens if you have a, a point that is perched and then another point comes along the same path? Do you have a queue in that case? Do you have last right wins? Do you have some other kind of... Um, Way of coordinating those two points, both waiting, building up as a as a backlog. Is there back pressure, and then how do all of those things, queuing or last right wins or back pressure or whatever, behave when you rewind execution? And that's the big. The big um, challenge is that any decisions that I make about what to do about synchronization, coordination, um, you know, building up a buffer of data or whatever it is needs to be something that is reversible and it needs to be uh, reversible using a not a full blown reverse execution like um this is a function that is bi-directional and so you can run it forward with some inputs to outputs or you can run it backwards from some outputs to inputs uh, you know run that at your whim that's not something that i'm doing because you can't have fully reversible functions without um very carefully annotating your data and so as my favorite example of that like a function that does multiplication of two input numbers so if you have a you know a multiplied by b as a function for that to be properly reversible where you can take some number and uh, demultiply multiply it out into the two incoming arguments your output needs to contain at least one of those incoming arguments uh, in order to figure out what the other one was and you can't have zero. You can't do multiply by zero because then, uh, like, let's say that you're uh, unless unless you unless you store the non-zero values your incoming argument. But even if you do store the non-zero values your incoming argument, um, the other value might also have been zero, and so you need to store both uh, incoming arguments. So to to do reverse execution in a way that is like very performant, I think it needs to be done in hardware, and it needs to be just very methodically designed in a way that gets very technical and there's there's just a really big cost to doing it that way. So I'm not I'm not pursuing the model of full blown reverse execution where you could work from some final value as your starting point and work backwards towards some inputs that led to that final value. That's not what I'm doing. I'm doing the rewind approach where you build up history of executions that have happened by just storing the inputs and so uh, and you don't store them you don't store them together with the outputs you just store like I'm just storing basically like what are the previous values that have been seen at certain locations and I can do some heuristics to um Simplify that. And in my playing around, that seems to be a really reliable strategy for doing rewind. It's not without its um, quirks and it's not without its shortcomings and its costs, but we will get more into that in a a future episode, I think, because that's very interesting to look at what other systems out there have already done, different approaches to reversibility and um, rewinding execution and, and how has that all played out in the past. And I think if you want to see some bits of my thinking about that already. I have a blog post that I wrote uh, sort of diving into those issues a little bit and giving a nice overview of Hest. If maybe, you know, you only just started listening to the show, you're not really sure what Hest is and what it's all about, you can go to my website, which is Ivanish, I-V-A-N-I-S-H dot C-A slash Hest dash time dash travel. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And so we're coming up on 15 minutes-ish for this episode pretty soon. So I'm just going to talk about a little small topic. I'm just going to introduce it. I don't know that this topic is going to be enough to carry a whole episode, so I think it's just a nice one to kind of um, chew on a little bit at the end of this episode without running super long. And that is um, what I'm thinking about doing for find and replace. And so one of the one of the objections that a lot of people have when looking at visual programming systems is that you are throwing away all of the tooling that you get to use when you work with text and so in text you have your editor of choice you have git and diff that it is built upon you have you know the ability to share text through chat and through the web very conveniently, you know you can post snippets of your code on Twitter as actual text that people can copy and paste there's just tons and tons and tons of um, tooling that already exists that expects that software is written in a text based language in a text based um, framework and when you move to a visual programming model, you are Giving up at least some, if not all, of that. So maybe the on disk persisted version of your program is saved out as some sort of text format, some serialized text format. And not all visual programming systems do that. Some store their their programs as images, which is bananas. You know, I'm staying away from that one for now. Um, some store their programs as uh, records in a database, and so your actual, you know, your persisted version is a a database that is like a separate running piece of software that is, you know, an entire separate concern into itself, and then whether or not you have some, you know, text-based or binary-based persisted form, that's up to the database. That's one place where text might come in. Uh, some some visual programming systems like Enso, formerly Luna, will have a a visual view of their program and a textual view of the program that are equivalent and edits to one apply to the other. And that's a very interesting model. There are just other ways of kind of, you know, making some concessions to text being the lingua franca of software code. And uh, one of the things that people reference in addition to Git and Diff and all that is find and replace. How do you do find and replace in a visual language? And I think that one is actually pretty easy to solve. Um, I say this as like, you know, I haven't actually built this into my prototypes yet. I'm just thinking about it a lot and kind of trying to uh, coin in the swear jar, reason my way through um, how it might work. And what I'm thinking of doing for this is that you would have a a, a dedicated view or window or, you know, a, a scratch pad somewhere that is for entering in the pattern that you would like to search for and you define that pattern very much like writing a regular expression but in a visual way so you could have say you have um you want to find all the instances in your program where there is an accumulator node and then some sort of you know output from that accumulator node goes through some intermediaries and then it the flow would arrive at uh, say a log node or something like that that might like you know log out the value or or present the value to the programmer in a way that's not meant to be visible by the end user of the software you're building. So you much like you would when you define a regular expression, you just write a little snippet of the pattern that you want to match on, and then insert special nodes into that pattern that represent things like you know controllable degrees of fuzziness so you'd have a concrete accumulator node concretely connected to a node that represents an arbitrary amount of other nodes in between and then you'd have that concretely connected to your log node at the bottom and so that's just basically like your you know this snippet followed by dot star or dot star question mark or whatever and then follow that by you know this concrete other snippet and so i think that that would work If not perfectly, I think that that would work fairly well for the most common use case of just, you know, I want to find something that resembles this. Um, And this is something that I'm sure this has been done somewhere before, but I've never seen it. I've never seen a visual language where they give you a a dedicated environment within which you can draw a little program graph, but instead of drawing it with the concrete Symbols and the concrete nodes that you use to define your program, you're putting in little abstract nodes that represent certain patterns or certain certain amounts of arbitrariness that the engine that's going to execute your find is, uh, is able to, um, make sense of and to, you know, be able to use, to introduce some flexibility into the results that it gives you back. And of course, you know, um, it doesn't just have to be these sort of fuzzy matches. You could also do a concrete match. Like I want to find all the places where this node exists and put that into your little find scratch pad. or I want to find all the places where, uh, these two nodes are connected together in this way. And, and, that generalizes very well to a lot of the other ways that you use uh, find and find and replace in text coding, where you you know you might select a word and then say, like, find me all the places where this word exists in my program." Yeah, so I think I think that there's a there is in in this case at least, and we'll leave things like you know version control and and file persistence for another time. But I think in the case of find and replace, there are direct analogs that you can use in the visual world, you know, analogous to the traditional text world, and I think that the the strengths and weaknesses come across very equivalently. And so, it's not something that is a a reasonable inherent objection to working with visual programming uh, the way that some people have claimed that it is. It's just a matter of you know you actually need to build that as a feature into your visual editing environment. You can't just not have that and the absence of it isn't because it's incompatible with visual programming it's just because people haven't built it so i uh yeah i think that that would work out very nicely and of course i will eventually prototype it and then learn why it fails spectacularly and oh oh dear oh dear oh damn (laughs) but uh that's you know that's the way this this is all gonna go